May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a famous type of picture associated with the Reformation, and it shows a very broad river with the banks of the river full of people, a rainbow, a sign of God's everlasting love, over the river, and then about 10 or 15 boats. And half the boats have Protestants from Geneva fishing for souls and using fishing nets and um, the Reformation equivalent of life belts, pulling people into the fishing boats. And the other half shows the Roman Catholic Christians um, doing the same um, and uh, leaning over. The bishops, however, have an advantage because they have their crozier and they can get people around the necks and pull them into the boat. Um, uh, unexpected uh, use for the bishop's staff. Of course, um, you, look at the, you look at the painting and you wonder which side's winning. And if the painting is in a gallery in Rome, almost certainly the Roman Catholic clergy are getting more souls in the boat and their side of the bank is rather busier. If you see the painting in Northern Europe, it'll be the Reformation clergy who are winning. And indeed, I've seen one version where um, a group of Roman Catholic bishops have all fallen into the water because they leaned over too far. Um, it, it's a very, these, these pictures are really very odd because they're gently humorous at a time when virtually nothing about the church seemed much fun. And of course, the picture as a whole shows the absurdity of many divisions in the church because those who aren't being gathered in are shown as um, in some distress and being about to drown. Um, the division between Catholic and Protestant is shown to be hardly relevant to our life with God. So I find these pictures to be full of hope that they were produced at a time when Christians were very bitterly divided indeed. And yet they serve to make that divide seem silly. Today too, we need pictures that show that divisions in the church are foolish and in error. And so in the letter to the Galatians, this extraordinary, powerful letter, Paul is entering into a debate between Christians who still saw the Christian faith as being part of what we now call the Jewish religion. And these Christians understood, it seems, that everyone who's baptized 
needed also to keep the laws in the Hebrew Bible. Specifically in this case, men had to be circumcised, a visible sign of the shedding of blood and their membership of God's people. At the same time, there were other Christians who also saw themselves as being part of the wider community of faith that we now call Judaism. There were other Christians who argued that such a precise obedience to the law was unnecessary and indeed probably a barrier against people, against men becoming Christians for reasons that uh, men will brief you about later. Um, uh, they saw this division as really silly and, and really without meaning. What does it matter once we follow Christ, which particular version of the Jewish ritual law we follow? Um, no doubt behind these divisions, there were other divisions as well. Almost certainly, the Christians who were encouraging circumcision, almost certainly we believe they were what we'd now call middle class. They were people who in the various communities of the Jewish diaspora around the Mediterranean had moved there for reasons of trade. They would have been small business owners. They might themselves have had slaves. They were doing quite well for themselves. Whereas the Christians who didn't want to be circumcised were almost certainly very poor people, many of them slaves, and a few rather wealthy people. Um, if this divide sounds odd, it's the same divide that there was in South Yorkshire for many, some hundreds of years, between Methodists and members of the Church of England. Broadly, the Methodist Church was middle class in South Yorkshire, or perhaps upper working class, whereas the Church of England had within it unskilled workers and rather wealthy people and very few people in the middle. Um, so either you had a lot of money or nothing at all. Um, most of us, well, you can decide which group you fall into. But behind the division between Church of England and Methodists, in the past was also a division of class. And the many small differences between our worship, which you would, you would need a, a magnifying glass to note, these, these became bigger because they became signs of how we were special. We insisted on the use of the Book of Common Prayer and didn't like hymns. Methodists loved hymns and um, didn't use the Book of Common Prayer quite as fully, and they preached even longer sermons. Can you imagine the day when that was something that people looked for in the church? Three-hour sermons. May that not come again in my lifetime. <laughs> and, so, and so Paul steps into this very complex division 
a division that's been brought about in the church were people making a different approach to the Jewish law absolutely crucial. Behind that, they understood this was obedience to God, not simply a choice they'd made. And then, beside all of that, there was this division of class and money and power. The churches that Paul had taught in were being torn apart by these values. Into this, Paul spoke in a way which is absolutely crystal clear and of great importance to the church today as we are conscious of the many divisions within the Christian church as a whole and even within our own Church of England. Divisions that may mean the Lambeth Conference next year is very poorly attended indeed. That's the uh, meeting of Anglican bishops throughout the world called by the Archbishop of Canterbury every 10 years. Paul speaks very clearly. Through the letter, he uses one word again and again and again, a word that speaks of inclusion. Paul constantly repeats the word all. We all are called. We all must bear one another's burdens. We all follow Christ, the same Christ. Paul wants us to see all our brothers and sisters, with all our differences, as all belonging together. There's a wonderfully moving sermon by a Russian Orthodox bishop from the 1960s. Um, He was a survivor of the purges of Stalin. And during those terrible years of um, arbitrary detention and execution, 85% of Russian Orthodox clergy were shot. And this was a bishop who had been um, lived through that and had seen most of his family murdered by the Stalinist um, security forces. And he invited the congregation to see an image of the end of time when they stand before God, our Saviour, on their own. They have survived. They have been faithful to the gospel. And Jesus looks at them standing there and says, where are the others? Where is Stalin? It's only if you bring Stalin with you in forgiveness that you yourselves can be healed. I found that a a very moving tribute by someone who learned how to forgive, someone who had objectively committed acts of great evil and terror. And behind it was a vision. 
informed by St. Paul, we are all redeemed together. Stalin, of course, had been baptized, but uh, this bishop was looking beyond the borders of the church. We all belong together as one community, and in his vision, we are all saved, or none of us are. It's an important question, isn't it? How will we stand before Christ without the others? And then Paul makes this extraordinary statement, which I don't think, despite almost 2,000 years of reflection, we have quite heard in its fullness. Paul says, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul takes some of the most obvious and bitter divisions of his own day and sets them within the context of the gospel where Christ overcomes sin, bitterness and division and brings healing. Paul sees the death and resurrection of Christ as having torn apart all the false divisions of this world and established everyone in equality, living together, where these divisions that seem so important to us simply no longer have meaning because we discover together that we are loved by God in the same way. It's taken the church an extraordinarily long time to reflect on these images, on, on this passage. I think because it's almost slightly frightening. We're told by Paul that we cannot base who we are on anything other then we are a human being loved by God. It doesn't fundamentally matter whether we are male or female, whether we are rich or poor, where we come from. What matters is that we are gripped together by Christ. How, how would the church be different how would our whole communities be transformed if, as Christians, we truly responded to this teaching of Paul? Were we proclaimed and lived a radical equality? Were we showed that all men and women are equally beloved of God? All belong. I think it's important not to hear Paul as silencing people who are different and just say, well, we're all the same, we don't need to know your history or anything. Paul saw that it was important that we have a particular history, a particular understanding of ourselves um, that shows how God has been with us through our lives. It's not true that that, that is important. 
But in the end, it's all secondary because there is no meaningful division by which in Christ we can divide ourselves from one another. Paul's teaching calls for an act of godly imagination where we can look at those who we feel are most different from us, people we find threatening or upsetting or disturbing, perhaps even people in our own family whom we have been divided from by our history, by loss, by divorce, by pain, and see that whatever has happened, our fundamental unity in the love of God has the final word. So, brothers and sisters, let us see the stupidity, the foolishness of trying to reinforce division in the church, between one another, in our families, in our wider community. Can we receive the teaching of the letter to the Galatians as the first Christians did? Bear one another's burdens. And then, there is no longer Jew or Greek There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus.